Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Sturkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. All right, good morning, church. That movie will be showing on October the 5th. Next week kicks off our Missions Emphasis Month. Uh, Hope you can be here every single Sunday in Missions Emphasis Month. Hope that you uh, will come to the events that we have. We have a family serve day on October the 22nd. That's a Saturday from about 8 to 1.30. And then we also have um, our missions panel discussion on uh, Sunday evening. There will be food. There will be worship time. It'll be a really good time. That's on October the 23rd. So I hope that you can join us for that. I'd like to go to the Lord in prayer before we uh, dive into his word this morning. God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. We thank you for giving it to us, God. We thank you, Lord, for what you reveal in it. We thank you for loving us. We thank you that we can trust in the righteousness of Jesus for our salvation. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, um, if you look at the back of your life guide, the title of this sermon is Blessed. And there's six points that we're not going to get to until like a long time from now. All right, so don't be looking like, when's he going to get to a point? We'll get to him at the end and we'll go through them quickly. But the title's Blessed. And I was talking to Tanner yesterday and he said I should have just put hashtag blessed since I'm a youth pastor to, uh, for the kids to, to hashtag it. But um, that's kind of what we're going to get into here in the sermon. Um, Does anybody feel blessed this morning? All right, so blessed to be in church, blessed to be in the Lord's house, blessed to be breathing, um, to be up this morning, right? But I think that what happens a lot of times is our blessings, when we we view blessings, and I'm not saying for every single person in here it's this way, but it tends to be that we view blessings in the physical realm. And that's what we think about when we think of blessings. I I got a new car, I'm blessed. Um, My family's healthy, they're blessed. I got a job that pays more, they're blessed, or I'm blessed. Someone comments on, you know, man, this house is so nice, and what's the response? It's like, yeah, we've been blessed. And that's a a normal response for us. And Braden's sitting front row here, and uh, he had like four touchdowns against Science Hill. He's one of our youth students. Was it four? Yeah, and so in his, uh, he, he had an interview post game, and he said in it that it was a real, ble- it was such a blessing. I think is, was his words, and I'm proud of him, and I, I think he's doing, um, I think he's doing pretty good, making the right decisions, doing what's right, and uh, God has blessed him, and we can acknowledge that these things are blessings in the physical realm, and also acknowledge that the world has hijacked what a blessing is, and it's even infiltrated the church, so that the church kind of decides, like, oh, this is what a blessing is, but really. It's what the world says is a blessing. Let me give an example. The idea that having material wealth makes you more blessed than someone with less, that's, that's a worldly idea. That's not a biblical idea. I mean, there's, there's plenty of rich people who are living like hell just because someone, um, I mean, not, for example, there could be someone who's um, a drug dealer operating an international drug cartel and uh, maybe they wear a cross around their neck and kiss it and they would say that they are absolutely blessed. I don't think that that's God that's providing a blessing for them for the lawlessness in their life. They might be blessed to still be breathing. There could be um, a high school football player who got a scholarship offer this week and scored a game-winning touchdown and puts the hashtag bless on his Instagram. But, I mean, the person might know nothing, nothing of Christ. doesn't necessarily mean that that was a blessing from God. And as we mature as our believers, we need to, as we mature as believers, we need to understand that our greatest blessings are spiritual in nature and, and they have an eternal weight or value. And uh, God wants us to start to view things with an eternal lens in the spiritual realm. And I want us to read some things that Jesus calls blessings, or, or he says, Blessed are these people in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, 3 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, most of the things that are described in this passage are things that the world would look at, the condition of a person, and say, 
man, that's sad. Man, that person's in a rough spot. You certainly wouldn't say blessed is this person. And I believe what's happened in the church over the years is um, maybe as a child, maybe at some point in your journey, you make a profession of faith. And um, you think, well, okay, my, my eternity is something that is out there that's to come. And then in the here and now, we're so influenced by the world around us that in the here and now, we live for what the world says we should live for in the here and now. Because we view, we view eternity as something when we die. So we, we live for earning potential and a nicer home and nicer stuff. But that's not what Scripture says about blessings, and that's not what Scripture says about eternal life. In John 17, 3, it says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So when we're born again, when we're made new creations through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, what we are living for in the here and now should look different. It should change. We're citizens of heaven. We're just passing through this world and everything should be viewed with a kingdom lens. We should start to understand the spiritual realm better. And this includes how we view blessings. And it's, I understand that it's easier to look at material stuff, stuff that's in our life right now, and, and those are the blessings. And it's easier to view that as blessings than what's in the spiritual realm, things that you can't, say, can't see, but nothing that you can have that you'll get in this lifetime is ever going to compare to what we have in Christ, what's in store for those who are in Christ. The soul is more valuable than anything we could possibly accumulate in this lifetime. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So in the old covenant, we see um, blessings that are promised to Israel, and a lot of them are physical in nature, and they are also contingent upon the compliance of Israel. In a lot of, a lot of cases, they're promised a nation, they're promised um, that uh, they'll have land, but all those things are looking forward to something greater, something greater that, that's here now, a day when all people can be blessed because of this nation. In Genesis twenty two eighteen. God says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So he promises Abraham and his offspring these blessings. And then we see Jeremiah prophesies that there would come a day when the law would be written on people's heart. And we have, we're in, that's the day that we are in now because, because all nations of the world can be blessed through Jesus the Messiah, Abraham's offspring, what he's done on the cross. So for those of us who know Jesus, there are blessings that are promised. And these blessings are a sure thing. God guarantees it. But the blessings are so much greater than just a car or job or money. They're blessings that are spiritual in nature, and they have an eternal value. They are eternal. Um, if you have your Bible, if you have your device, verses will be up here on the screen. If you'd rather look at that, though, uh, we are going to be in Ephesians 1 for most of our time this morning. The book of Ephesians is what we've been going through in youth. It was written around um, AD 61, probably from, probably from Rome while Paul was in prison there. And he's writing to the church of Ephesus where he had a really effective ministry. Um, he, he was there for about two and a half to three years, and there was a lot of fruit that came from the ministry in Ephesus. And so he's writing to the church of Ephesus. It was probably meant to be circulated around the region as other letters that he wrote were. And um, in the first half of the book, he's really focused on who we are in Christ. Now that you're a child of God, this is who you are. And in the second part of the book, he really focuses on practical ways to live that out. So let's start in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So in the, this first verse, we see Paul start by acknowledging his credentials, who he is. He is an apostle. He's an apostle not because he has chosen to be an apostle, but because God chose him for this specific purpose. Secondly, we see who he is writing to. He is writing to the saints at Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He is writing to believers. He's writing to people who have been born again. The saints at Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. For those of us here this morning that have been born again, you're the saints at the church at Sturkey Hills. Saints means set apart ones. That's what a saint is. If you're a believer, you're a saint. And the world's kind of tried to redefine this so you can't be a saint 
really until after you die and you had to be like really good and do really good things to be a saint. And then we can call you a saint later on. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, might say creation in your Bible. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. So this group that Paul's writing to in, in the book of Ephesians, if you've been born again, you're a new creation, you're a new creature, you are now part of this group. You're a saint or a holy one. And this new group that you're a part of should be the most important group. Your allegiance should lie with this group above any other group, above your family, above the college football team that you were cheering for yesterday. Your allegiance is to this. And as I said earlier, though, a lot of times we make this profession to receive Jesus into our lives, and then we, we continue living as we are who we used to be. We're living with our identity stuck in something else rather than our identity advancing, our identity being in Christ. And having your identity in Christ means union with Christ that wasn't possible before. He's now in you and, and you are in him. And it's, um, it's popular in the church to say that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And, and this is true. That's, that's who you are. If, you, you know, if you've been saved by grace, you were a sinner. Now you've been saved by grace. But God calls you a lot of other things now too. And that's not an excuse that you're a sinner saved by grace to just continue sinning. Look at some things, a reality about you before you came to Christ versus who you are now that you are a child of God. True about you before Christ, you're a sinner, you're lost, you're a stranger, you're dead, an orphan, and guilty. And in Christ, you're a saint or a holy one, you're found, you're a citizen, you're alive, you're adopted, you were forgiven. All of these are, are spiritual blessings, by the way, and it's not an exhaustive list. There's many more things that you are in Christ now that you are a child of God. So as believers, we need to stop living like what was true about us before Christ is also true about us now because we are in Christ. We are the light of the world. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. We're called to live that out. In verse 2, it goes on and says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a common greeting in, in Paul's letters. And grace is unmerited favor, something that can't be earned. And peace is something that comes to those from God, who have received, those who have received his grace. I believe that um, grace, which is mentioned 12 times in Ephesians, and peace, which is mentioned 8, that you can't really have that peace. People might put on um, a front that they have peace in their life, but I don't believe real peace can come apart from a relationship with Jesus. It goes on in verses 3 and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, that's, that's kind of what we started with, what we started looking at, spiritual blessings, and that's what we're going to be talking about. But the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessings. Who is us? Us is the faithful in Christ Jesus. That's going to get important as we dive deeper into this passage. All right, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And our blessing includes an eternal inheritance that is included in heaven, kept in heaven for us. And we'll get to that later on. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, store up for yourself treasures in heavens, in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you find yourself just chasing after what the world says is, is a blessing, over and over that stuff's gonna fade, it's gonna perish. But in Christ, our, our spiritual blessings are forever. Now, moving on, verse 4 through 6, I'm going to read in Ephesians 1, and we're going to spend some time here. It says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So what we're going to get into here a little bit is the theological concepts of predestination and election. And Joel's been going through the, the book that some of you guys probably have with you, um, DNA book. We're going to read from that in just a little bit. But if you don't, there's some out in the lobby. A lot of you guys have probably, it's been like a month or so, probably lost it by now. But um, when he's been going through this, this DNA book, a lot of the things that Joel's uh, been preaching about, um, it's caused different denominations. It's caused denomination splits. Um, but within our denomination, um, we, we are a Southern Baptist church, within that denomination, a lot of the things at a, in a conservative Christian church are pretty, cons there's a pretty good consensus on what he's been speaking of. And so 
He's left me to speak on this today now that, that he's in Africa where there's not really quite the consensus because this doctrine of predestination is something that A.W. Tozer would disagree with um, Charles Spurgeon on. Both of them, I hold of high esteem, would read both of their works. It's something that C.S. Lewis would say that John Piper has got it wrong on. It's something that Piper and MacArthur would disagree on. These are people that I read. And um, I think that you guys, after hearing this, you're probably, some of you guys are going to leave and be like, that made sense. I think I understand that more now. I agree with that. Some of you guys are going to be like, I totally disagree with what he was saying because I fall on this side. And then other of you, these next about two or three pages in my notes, you're going to totally zone out and be like, I have no idea what he was talking about. And that's okay too. And no matter where you fall, it, no matter where you fall, if you disagree completely with me, and, and I'll go ahead and tell you and be up front, Joel's where I'm at on this, but if you totally disagree with us on this, it doesn't mean that you can't teach here at the church. It doesn't mean that you can't be a member at the church. So, um, we're not Arminians, we're not Calvinists, and um, I'm not going to talk a lot about Arminianism this morning because this is not an Arminian proof text. This is more of a Calvinist proof text, and so I am going to talk a little bit about that, and then I'm going to get into what I believe that the, the text is saying. Um, we don't hold to a tulip systematic. I don't, I don't really like just saying reform because there were a lot of reformers that were not Calvinist. I know a lot of times we talk about John Calvin or Martin Luther. There were lots of reformers that were not Calvinist. And um, we believe in the sovereignty of God, absolutely. But we don't believe, what we don't believe is that the sovereignty of God, that sovereignty means that God is ultimately the determining cause of all decisions, all choices made by people. Psalm 115.3, it says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Psalm 103.19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So ultimately, we believe that God's sovereignty means that he is in complete control. He's in control of everything. He knows everything. He's, he's omniscient. He's omnipotent or all-powerful. Um, he's all places at once. He's omnipresent. But we also believe that the Bible teaches libertarian freedom of the will. And when I say libertarian freedom of the will, it means that giving multiple options, you could make multiple decisions. You chose to come to church this morning. You also could have chosen to sleep in and not come to church. You also could have chosen to get up and go to a pumpkin patch or something. We believe that there, you could have chosen multiple things, that that decision was not determined A.W. Tozer says this, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice and man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God but fulfills it. And as much as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom God has willed to give a man limited freedom, who is there to stay his hand or to say, what doest thou? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. So we believe that God in his sovereignty has chosen to give man free will. And when I say that they can choose between options, I believe that man has a genuine choice if they can choose to love the Lord, choose to follow him, choose to repent, choose not to. And that we are sinners totally separated from God. I believe in total depravity, but what I don't believe in is total inability. I believe that we all are born into a sin curse because of the fall of Adam. What I mean here is that all of us, there's no righteousness in our own. No one is righteous. No, not one. But that doesn't mean that if I present the gospel here to you later today, that the appeal of the gospel, that the Holy Spirit at work in that, I believe that there's not one person here that can't receive that. So when I say that anybody, anybody can be saved, I really believe that anybody can be saved. I don't believe as we get in here, this predestination, that some of you are never going to be capable of being able to be saved. So, I don't believe that this makes God less powerful or man more powerful. C.S. Lewis said that this is how real love and relationship can be possible. So, we're going to get back to the text, and I'm going to explain just kind of um, a more what, what you might hear as Reformed or Calvinistic rendering of this, because it is popular within the SBC, and I know that some of you guys are here this morning, and that's what you hold to. You know, I, I was in India in um, 2018, and 
I listened to probably uh, 90% of the people I listened to were Reformed or, or were Calvinist. And I was going that way. And I was like, man, this, this seems right. I found other people who had good answers. I never knew answers for, for some of the questions. I, I never knew, like, some of the things, and I, I don't have two hours, so I can't get into all of it, but some of the things never made sense to me. I found people that had good answers, and I believe that the interpretation of Scripture fit, was, fit better with what all of Scripture was saying to me and what I believe it is saying, not, not just to me. So, um, verse four and five, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So, um, tulip theology would say that this verse means that, that God has elected certain individuals um, for salvation and that he has passed over others and those that he has passed over, they never would have wanted him. They never would have wanted to come to Christ because of their sin nature, because of the fall of Adam. And then some in, in the, the reformed camp would refer to a concept of double predestination. And if, any, if you're here and you're there and you know what I'm talking about and you're like, well, I don't believe in double predestination, and that's fine. It's not a monolithic group, but that's something that John Calvin did believe in. And that is that some are picked for salvation and others are reprobates and and are damned and they will never have a choice to choose Christ. And this isn't what I believe the passage is teaching. Um, I listen, like I said, I listen to a lot of these teachers and it's not that I don't believe Calvinism or Reformed theology because it's like, um, is, I don't know if it's John Piper or R.C. Sproul that it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's because I don't believe that it's what the scripture is teaching, okay? I don't believe it leaves any room for libertarian freedom of the will, which, which I, I don't like hold to is that's some power that I have, but I believe that it's something that scripture teaches, okay? So um, Calvinism would teach that you can only choose what your nature wants. So if you put a lion in a cage, every single time the lion, and you put carrot and, meats, and meat there, every single time a lion's gonna choose meat, not carrots. You put a, a rabbit there, it's nature's going to choose carrots and not the meat. But the problem is the choices, ultimately our nature is determined in eternity past because God is the one that ultimately is the decisive cause of everything on Calvinism, qual Calvinism, not like maybe your form of it. Okay. So um, if you love God, it's because God determined that you would love him. And if you don't love him, then you never could have you never could have loved him because of the fall of Adam. So I don't believe that Scripture's teaching this. That the Scripture's teaching that like maybe God's picked Braden from eternity past, but He hasn't picked uh, McKenna for reasons that that we we don't know. Um, I believe it flies in the face of too much Scripture. And I'm going to give you some, and then I'm going to go back to verses four and five. Second Peter three nine says, "The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance." First Timothy two three and four says, "This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth." Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? So um, I believe that, that this human free will is implied throughout the scriptures, um, from the Old Testament to Jesus to the early church. And what I don't believe is that God is telling people, repent. Why would you die if only you would repent, if only you would turn? And then he has a secret will where these people will never be able to repent or to turn. Luke 13, 34, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. I don't believe that's because God determined that they would not have it. I believe that's because of the hardness of their hearts, that they had rejected the truth and their hearts had become hardened. John 20, 31 says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. I see that the order in scripture over and over seems to be that you believe so as to have life in his name, not that you are given life or regenerated first so that you may believe. Colossians 2 says that we are raised through faith, not raised to faith. 
So I believe that God provides sufficient means. He provides um, sufficient means for people to be saved. And that when the gospel is preached, and when the Holy, the Holy Spirit is at work in that, that a person can humble themselves and repent and that they can be saved. And I don't believe that humbling yourself and repenting is somehow you doing a work or earning salvation, you coming to faith. I don't believe that faith is a work. I think that Romans speaks to us that faith is not a work. You're just trusting in the righteous one, acknowledging that I can't trust in the righteousness of myself. And if you aren't saved, it isn't because you weren't chosen and you weren't predestined. It's because you refused him, as scripture says. So another position on predestination is that God in his foreknowledge chooses those who will trust in Christ. So I'll I'll just say this. Think of this. God is outside of space and time. All right, so God does not look at my life, at Clark's life, and look at it on a timeline and say like, okay, in five years he's gonna do this, in 10 years he's gonna do this. And he, ha- he doesn't have to look through like um, a time capsule and see what someone is gonna do a thousand years from now. He sees everything on a dot. He knows what, when the day was that I was gonna receive him into my life. He knows the day that I'm gonna die. He sees the day that I was born. He sees me a thousand years from now. He sees a thousand years ago all in an instant because he is outside of space and time. In Romans eight twenty nine, it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, become conformed to the image of his son, that they would be the firstborn among many brethren, predestined to become like Christ. And as we get into Ephesians 1, get back to our passage, it'll help explain that better. So as we get into the passage, I'll just say, I don't believe that this passage, as I've said, if you haven't got that, if you haven't got anything that I've said in the last couple minutes, that this passage is God picking some for salvation while passing over most of his creation. But I do believe that it is God showing that he predestines um, those to, uh, who are in Christ through faith to blessings and that the destination of where we spend eternity is absolutely determined and is set in Christ. So verse four says, just as he chose us in him, I want us to keep remembering that phrase, us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So who did he choose? He chose us. Who is us? The faithful in Christ Jesus, the saints in Ephesus. For us here today, the saints at Sturkey Hills, if you are a believer, he chose you, not because of you, because of Christ, you happen to be in Christ, if you are a believer. What did he choose the faithful in Christ Jesus for? That they would be holy and blameless before him. And then we're about to see a bunch of other things. Okay, so does Paul mean that God chose individuals before they were born to be placed in Christ so that they would be made holy and blameless? Or does Paul mean that God chose those who are in Christ to be made holy and blameless? And I believe that that it's the latter. So the first point is the blessing of being holy and blameless. I doubt that anyone in here would say that you were holy in and of yourself. Anybody want to confess to that and say like, yeah, I'm, I'm holy? I met somebody this past Monday night. That actually, <laughs> he didn't say it like that. But that's basically what he said. So I was uh, downtown on Monday night and there's a guy that I talked to last week and then I talked to him again this week and um, I asked him if he knew the Lord this week and he told me uh, he got saved when he was 17. And this is common in the South. It's a thing for people to say like, yeah, I got saved at this age. So I go ahead and press him and say like, well, tell me about that. Tell me about how that happened. And um, he said, well, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not that educated. I'm like, well, you, don't, you don't have to be that, that smart to, <laughs> you don't have to have a high IQ to be able to tell me how the Lord saved you. And so we kind of weren't getting anywhere. And I said, okay, tell me if you stood before God, why should you get into heaven? And this is a good question to ask someone to see what they're really placing their faith in, what they're really trusting in. And the response I got from this guy was, I've never done anything wrong. And I looked at him like this and I said, never, nothing? You've done nothing wrong your whole life? Again, he does this. Not that I can think of. So anyway, I go ahead and I share the gospel with him and I share with him that we're separated from God, that we're not holy, that God's wrath is upon us, but in Christ, we have righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The blessing of being made holy and blameless, it's through Christ, it's through his righteousness. The second point is the blessing of adoption. In Ephesians 1.5, it says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So because of his great love for us, not because of something we did, he predestined us 
to adoption. Again, who is us, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Predestined us to adoption. This term predestination, the destination is determined beforehand. And I'm going to give this analogy, and it's not a perfect analogy, and I can't give a perfect analogy for what God does for us. Okay, and you're going to say, what? and it's an airplane analogy, and you're going to have to say, well, Clark, you had to drive to the airport, get on that airplane, you'll understand what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the destination of the plane is determined. Okay, so um, say that there's a plane, and it's flying from Knoxville to Miami tomorrow morning, 7 a.m., and I tell you guys, whoever, whoever should come, whoever, whosoever will come, you will be in Miami tomorrow. That is the destination, all right? And there's gonna be snacks on the plane, and when we get there, this is what's gonna happen. The destination is determined beforehand. Those who are on that plane, that's what's gonna happen. When we read this passage, those who are in Christ, that's what's gonna happen. These are the things that are gonna happen to those who are in Christ. And we see who is in Christ, not because you, you drove a car to, to Jesus and you did work and stuff. We're going to see that in verse 13. So just bear with me. We'll get to that, okay? So the blessing of adoption, our adoption is not yet complete. We are already adopted to the extent that we are now children of God through Jesus, but our adoption isn't complete until we receive the redemption of our bodies. In Romans 8, 23, it says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Adoption is an amazing thing. And I know that there's some of you here who have adopted, there's some of you who have adopted numerous children. And it's just an amazing thing to think about what God does for us, right? Making us um, as children have this inheritance with Christ, which we'll talk about in a second, and adopting us forever. In Ephesians 1, 6, it tells us why it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. When it says in the beloved, it's speaking of Jesus. It's another way of saying in Christ or in him. Jesus is called the beloved at the transfiguration when he's baptized. God says, my beloved son. So the blessing of adoption, number three is the blessing of of redemption and forgiveness. In verse seven, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. So unless you're the guy that I talked to downtown on Monday, you probably would acknowledge that you need forgiveness of sins because you probably would acknowledge that there is something that you have done wrong. But maybe you think, well, I'm not that wicked. I follow the, the laws well. I'm not like morally bankrupt. Well, in Ephesians 2, this is how it describes our sin, the reality of all of us before Christ, that we're dead, that we're enslaved, that we're objects of wrath, that we're walking among the disobedient, and that we're under Satan's domain. So actually the sin that you might see is, well, it's, it's not that bad. It's a pretty big deal to God. But in Christ, we have complete forgiveness of that sin. Past, present, future, we have complete forgiveness of sin. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In 1 John 2, 2, it says, And he himself is the propitiation. That word means like the... the, the um, Propitiation means that the punishment that our sin deserved, it was fully satisfied through Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You guys ever pray for forgiveness for like the same thing over and over again? I feel like that I've, I've found myself at a time in my life doing this and I don't mean that like I, I sinned again or I sinned again, but like something that I asked for forgiveness for two weeks ago and it's that same thing and it's like stuck in my head and I'm not receiving that forgiveness and then 10 days later I'm praying for that very same thing. First John 1 9 is an encouraging verse it says if we confess our sins he's faithful and he's righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To so be confident as a child of God that you've been forgiven. The fourth point is the blessing of knowing the mystery of his will. In verses 9 and 10, it says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And you might be thinking like, I don't know any mystery. What mystery? Yes, yes, yes. If you are a believer, if you're born again, you're included 
in on the secret. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We know Jesus. We know the mystery, all right? And, and God's plan to save both Jew and Gentile through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, that's part of the mystery. The, the true children of Abraham are the ones who believe, that's part of the mystery. And then in Revelation, it teaches us that there's gonna be a new heavens and a new earth and all things are gonna be made new in Jesus and that there's gonna be a new world order where Jesus is made head of this reunited universe and all things are gonna be um, unified under him. He's either going to be savior or judge for all people. And then in Romans 8, it teaches us that creation is longing for this day. That's the mystery. That's the mystery that the world doesn't know, that the world scoffs at, that the world thinks is silly. Number five is the blessing of an inheritance. In verse 11, it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So as a believer, you can share in the inheritance of Christ. You are not the one true son. You are an adopted son or daughter, but you are treated as a son, as a daughter, and you get to sh share in the, the inheritance with Christ. Imagine your parents before you were born saying, this is what my children will receive. And God's children are those who are in Christ. And this is what God has done for those in Christ. This inheritance is just a lot better than anything that you could be left in this lifetime. First Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. All right, so back to that phrase, in him. In him. How are we included in him? Because all of these things, it says, it says it 10 times. All of these things are saying that in Christ you, get, you have this. In him you have this. In the beloved you have this, right? In verse 13 it says, in him you also. After listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge for our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You heard, you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. In the NIV it says, you were included when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So you were marked with God by the Holy Spirit when you heard the message, when you believed the message. And this mark validates ownership, okay? If, if you're in Christ now, then you are God's forever. He, he bought you with the price and he seals you with the promised Holy Spirit. And this brings up a point of eternal security. Maybe you've heard like once saved, always saved, right? Um, I, I wanna read to you out of page 23 in the DNA book, the, the statement, the church's statement on this um, on eternal security, okay? So if you have that, I'm on, I'm on page 23. It says, salvation has an eternal weighted value whereby it eternally separates mankind into two eternal classes, the redeemed of God adopted into his eternal family, assigned an eternal state of life with God forever and lost, the, excuse me, the lost and depraved separated from God's eternal family forever because of their refusal to receive God's grace gift of forgiveness in their life. We believe in eternal security based on the finished work of Christ Jesus in our life. Our salvation is fixed on the perfection and holiness of Christ Jesus and his atoning sacrifice upon us, or excuse me, upon a cross. No action, no deed, no thought can add to the redeeming work of salvation of the salvation of Jesus. We cannot merit, earn, or acquire salvation by any work of our own. Therefore, a believer who is born again and sealed by the spirit of promise cannot lose such salvation as it is fixed in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And it has never, nor will it ever be based on our, our own performance or goodness. So if you are genuinely saved, then we believe that you will genuinely be saved forever. If you continue in the faith, we believe that you are genuinely saved. This isn't earning your salvation. This is the fruit of your salvation. 
In John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give, the, give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He also says in Matthew 7, 16, you'll know them by their fruits. So I believe this is a good transition quote right here from Pastor David Guzik. He said, we are saved because of Jesus' work and we continue to be saved because of his power to do so. Many people think making a confession or saying a prayer at some point means they are saved even if their life bears no Christian fruit. Some think they can live like hell and are still saved because of a confession. However, genuine faith requires genuine repentance. And that leads me to the last point, and that is the blessing of kingdom work. I'm going to skip over to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And if I got one week to do this, all right? So if, if I had more weeks, I'd go through all of Ephesians like I am through the youth, and this would be like three weeks here, all right? So... Um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So first of all, grace is not earned. Grace is given. It's given freely, okay? I told the youth that the most expensive gift that I've ever purchased is Kelsey's engagement ring. I haven't bought a car for her or anything. She already had that, she got that car like way before we were married, still driving it. But the most expensive gift I've ever purchased was her engagement ring. And so I get down, ask her to marry me. She receives that ring. She puts it on. About a year later, we get married. How weird would it be if after she put that ring on, in the coming months, I started saying, hey, my bank account's pretty drained from that ring. Think you could start contributing a little bit to it, make some payments to it, maybe $100 this month, a couple hundred next month. C- could you help out with that a little bit? I mean, that engagement probably would be off, right? So <laughs> the grace that we receive from God is the greatest gift anyone could ever receive. We, we can't pay for it. It's paid completely in full, and he doesn't ask you to start paying for it after you've been saved. I mean, this is way better than a ring, though. If, if someone saved your life on the way to church this morning, you would tell people about it. And that's what we're called to do. There should be fruit that comes from our life. So this grace saves. How is this grace appropriated or given to us? Well, Ephesians 2.8 says that it's through faith. And faith is simply taking something that someone has given us, this free gift that God has provided for us, us humbling ourselves, repenting, and placing our trust in the righteousness and the finished work of Jesus on the cross rather than trusting in anything of ourselves. I said earlier, I don't believe that just like you repenting, though, necessarily, that doesn't earn you anything. It doesn't earn you salvation. Jesus still had to die. God still has to to give his grace to you. He's not required to give anyone his grace. He's not obligated to do that. Think about the prodigal son that came home. He's in a pigsty. He's living like the world. He's doing everything that he's not supposed to do, living this foolish life. And he realizes what a foolish life it is and says, he's, you know, he's going to go to the father. He's going to um, confess how foolish he's been. And he's going to say, I'll, I'll be your slave. The father in no way in that story. And this is why the father is, is held of such high esteem in that story because of the mercy that he has for his son. The father in, in no way is obligated to kill the fatted calf and throw a party. He's no, in no way obligated to give him his ring and put a robe around his neck. He chooses to do that. The father chooses to do that. And God chooses to give his grace to those who have faith. Not because we're somehow 1% participating in our salvation. We're 100% responsible for believing and God's 100% responsible for saving. And if you're down sometimes and you're thinking like, well, I don't know if I'm saved because I got caught in this or I did this. Just remember that salvation is not of your own doing. It's not something that you've done. It's not something that you've earned. Now, if there's no Christian fruit coming from your life, which we'll get into with this last point, then, um, then, then talk to somebody, pray about that. The Bible says to work at our salvation with fear and trembling 
But you know, I can ask a lot of times students or people on the street if they're saved, kind of like I did, I did earlier with that guy uh, when I was telling you guys about. And um, a lot of times the answers are yes, and then the follow-up is, I got baptized at this time. I've always gone to this church. They tell me about their church membership. Catholic person might talk about taking the Eucharist. But there's no mention of Jesus. There's no mention of his sacrifice. There's no mention of how they came to know him personally. And the sad thing is the prevailing belief around the world among people who say, would put on a survey that they are a Christian, that is that basically if you live a pretty good life, that you'll go to heaven. Salvation is not of our own doing. It's not earned by works. So I went through Ephesians 2, um, the first 10 verses with our students, and I asked them, okay, if salvation is not of our own doing, then why is verse 10 there? What is verse 10 all about? Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The same way in Ephesians 1, we see that those who are in Christ have these spiritual blessings. We're predestined. We're going to receive these things. If you are in Christ, by grace through faith, he has prepared work for you to do. He has saved you and there's work for you to do that is the fruit of your salvation. They're not how you're saved, but they're what you're saved for. First Peter 2, 9 says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are new creations in Christ. We're a people after God's own possession. We were created for this purpose. When you came to Christ, do you realize you were committing your life to him? You committing your life to him was not what saved you, but when you came to him, when he saved you, you're committing your life to him. To live for him, to follow him. It would have been pretty awkward if I gave Kelsey that ring and then the only time she ever talked to me after that was if like I could give her some advice or if I could help her in some way. And she never even hung out with me anymore. In fact, she dated guys that she used to date before her and I got together. But yet she still claimed that ring. She still claimed that, that she was with me because she was committing her life, hopefully, I think so, yeah, to me, right? So. What happens a lot of times is many Christians will say, you know, or people that claim Christianity, yes, I, I've received Jesus into my life. I've trusted in him. He saved me. And then the only time they talk to him is if they're desperate, if they need something. The only time they spend time with the body of believers, a couple times a year, once a month, maybe twice a month, I'll go to church and that's it. And there's no devotion. There's no relationship. There's no time with the Lord on their own. Our salvation is demonstrated to others by the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And it's evident to the world that we are walking as God's chosen people when this is in our lives. If there was a tree and this tree could talk and said, I am an apple tree. And you kept going back to the apple tree every day, year after year. And there was never an apple that came from that tree. You might start to say, are you sure you're not something else? You don't look like an apple tree. I've never seen an apple. Paul in Ephesians 2.10, what he's doing is he's showing us that he agrees with James, all right? Sometimes people will say like, well, there's some friction there, right? Between Paul, the way that he views salvation and James. I think that verse 10 shows us that he agrees with James, that genuine faith will produce genuine life-changing works. Excuse me, I didn't say that right. That genuine faith produces genuine life change that is evident in our works and how we live, all right? He agrees with him. He agrees that the love of God that saves you is the same love of God that will change your life. So I'll close with this this morning. Are you living a, a transformed life? I'm not talking about just like behavior modifications here and there that you're like, if I just did this, I'd be a little bit better person. Maybe I could, I could do this. And you're just trying to change an old nature that's corrupt, that's separated from God. Because if you've been born again, you've been given a new nature. I wanna challenge you guys as we move into this next month, into Missions Emphasis Month, and, and we challenge you guys about finding a place to serve here, to serve in the community. I wanna challenge you guys to, to look at um, the booths, the tables that are out there. 
to not just come into church a couple times next month and then leave and pass by everything because every single one of us has a role to play in the Great Commission. That is what we have been saved for. Not just the pastors, not just the staff, not just missionaries who live overseas. Every single one of us has a role to play in this. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And it's our calling, it is our duty as believers to make Jesus known to others so that they can experience these blessings too. You guys could just bow your heads with me this morning. Maybe you're at a place this morning where that grace, that free gift, you've never, you've never received that. And you realize this morning, I've never received that gift. I've, I've gone to church. I've done some small group. I've done some Bible study. I've confessed Jesus, but it's just all me. I've never really laid down trusted in him and him alone and his finished work on the cross. And maybe you've heard the gospel a million times, but maybe you feel the Holy Spirit tugging this morning. Your heart's open to it more than it's ever been before. Jesus loves you. God loves you. He loves you too much to leave you where you're at. Came into this world and lived a perfect life and died a brutal death on a cross for your sins. He was raised again on the third day. And for all those who trust in him, who place their faith in that and that alone, who give up trying to have any righteousness of themselves and realize that the righteousness of Christ is the only thing that can save. Those who believe that, if that's you this morning, you realize it for the first time, just confess to him, God, I am a sinner. I have fallen short of your glory. I have sinned against you. And today I trust in Jesus and his sacrifice for me completely. I'm letting go of everything of myself and I'm committing my life to you. I believe that you are the son of God, that you died for my sins and that you rose from the dead. Come into my life, change me, make me a new person. I believe that you died for me and I receive your grace gift. And I commit my life to walk with you. Lord, for the rest of us in here, I pray God that you would just um, help us to have more of an awareness of the spiritual realm, that we would look to the, to the spiritual blessings, the gifts that you have promised for those who are in Christ, and that we would make your name known to others, that we would participate in kingdom work that you have prepared for us so that others can receive those gifts too. And we can see people come to you, Lord, and we can see the body grow, not for our glory, Lord, but for yours. Lord, we love you and we give you all praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.